your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Ankar Gatte. Ankar is a senior fellow and chief content officer here at the Iron Institute. Now, he's also a philosopher by training, and so I wanted to have him on here to discuss the morality of the welfare state. Usually, debates over what to do about the welfare state are economic debates. It's a question of numbers, it's a question of detailed policies, but we don't usually stop and question is the welfare state moral, and how should we think about the morality of different proposed solutions? Yet, these are vital. Because without having a good grasp on what we're trying to achieve, on what a moral system would look like, we're destined to keep running into wrong systems. Now, you might think that the answer to this question is self-evident. What do you mean, is it moral, Watkins? Of course it's moral. I think by today's episode, you'll at least get be convinced that there's a real question here that needs to be thought about and debated. So with that, let's get started. Ankar, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Hi, thanks for having me on. So one of the things we hear is that the welfare state is one of the great moral achievements of the 20th century. What do you say to that? I say that's a complete inversion of the actual truth. The, the welfare state was premised on the idea, you can put it in various ways, that your your brother's keeper, that it's your moral obligation to look out for the welfare of other people, and in particular, it's insofar as they're in need, as they're suffering, regardless of whether they're suffering through a fault of their own, regardless of whether they're lazy, regardless of whether they don't want to work, um, they've made bad choices in their life. You're not to look into any of that. The fact that they're suffering, the fact that they're in need, gives rise for you a moral obligation to take care of them, which means you can't pursue your own happiness. You can't try to advance your own life. If you're trying to save for an education, save to buy a house, that money is seized from you by the government and given to them. And that's done in the name of morality. And I think that is a complete perversion of what morality is actually about. Morality is about pursuing your own life, your own happiness, your own self-interest, and to do that to the best extent that you can, to make the most of your life, not to be your brother's keeper, not to look after anyone in need for whatever reason that they happen to be in need. But you don't think we have any responsibility to the poor? You have one responsibility, um, and that is to treat them as individual human beings who are rational, who are also capable of pursuing their own happiness to make something of their own lives, if they were to live in freedom. That just as you can prosper in a capitalist system, in a system where you're free, free to think for yourself, to plan your life, to get an education, to decide on what career you want, how you're going to pursue that career, where you're going to live, to make all these choices to plan out your life, you need that whether you're rich or whether you're poor. So your only obligation to other people is to respect that just as you have a right to pursue your 
own happiness, that you, as Ayn Rand would often put it, are an end in yourself and have to make the most of your own life. So they have that, and should and you should view other people as having that same moral outlook on their life, and therefore the same individual rights to their life, to their liberty, to their pursuit of happiness. And you should respect that. And in a sense, you can call that an obligation, but it's an obligation to treat them as rational, individual human beings, just as you should regard yourself. Well, but you, you're talking about their freedom and one of the, I mean, there's a famous saying, a hungry man is not free. And it's, you need a basic minimum before you can pursue your happiness. Isn't that true? Uh, I don't think it is true at all. It is a hungry man is free if he lives in a free country. And that is why so many hungry men who came with basically just the shirt on their back, that the, the poverty that the people coming from parts of Europe, parts of Asia, parts of Africa coming to the U.S. or North America, the U.S. and Canada, with basically nothing. And they came precisely because they understood, yes, I'm hungry, but in a free country, if I'm free, then I can make something of my life. I can build something. I can get a job. I can get an education. I can work. I can start a family, and they'll have a better life than what I had. Um, and I, I remember I grew up in a town where we had some uh, the Vietnamese boat people, as they were called. They were people escaping the communism of Vietnam. They were on rickety boats and rafts, coming with nothing. I mean, literally nothing other than the shirt on their back. And they came to Canada, and they came to this town, and they were able to build a life for themselves precisely because they understood what they were trying to get to out of communism, where they weren't free, to a place where they are free. And it was irrelevant whether they would come hungry, because they wouldn't stay hungry. Well, so you're kind of talking about it in a way that seems pretty either or, right? It's you can serve, you can pursue your own happiness, or you're your concerned with serving the happiness of others. But I mean, the way that this is always portrayed is, look, you have to set aside some amount of money to help out other people. But for the most part, you know, you're free to go about uh, promoting your own life. It's a, I think it's a red herring to think of it in terms of helping other people. Um, there are many reasons why you would help other people, help your family members, help your friends, help people that you respect, a neighbor that you respect who's on hard times, um, to help people suffering through no cause of their own, to donate. I've donated to cancer research, for instance, um, and I put that under the label of helping others and advancing scientific research. That, I think, all is compatible with pursuing your own interests. Indeed, it's often required if you have friends or family member who have fallen for various reasons on hard time, on hard times. If you think it is um, through no fault of their own and you're trying to support their virtues to get them back on their feet so that they can start making something better of their lives, so they can restore themselves on a path to prosperity and to happiness. It's often you're required to do that, but you're required to do it in the name of your own self-interest, in the name of your own happiness, for the very fact that what happens to your friends and families in their lives matters to you. It matters to your own life and happiness. So it's not an issue of helping others. It's an issue of whether you have a moral obligation to help someone in need because he's in need. Does his need give him a claim on your time, on your money, on your values, on your life? 
So can he assert, I have a moral right to your things, and you have to say, oh yeah, you do. So I'll give you part of my time, part of my money, part of my life. And that is what I reject, that one has that kind of moral obligation. And when someone who is in need, and let's say it's in need through no fault of his own, asserts that he has a moral right to your life, to your time, to your pursuit of your own self-interest, that you have to stop doing that and have to help him because he's in need, you have to reject that kind of claim and say, I will not help you if that is your view of me, that I'm a servant to your need. Well, this makes it sound, though, that it sounds very um, much like one person against another, whereas the way that it's usually thought of is, um, look, there's a social contract, we're all part of society, and it's kind of mutual, we're helping out each other mutually. So, you know, sometimes I'm the person in need, and I'm going to gain a benefit from the welfare state, and other times you're the person in need, and you're going to gain a benefit. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of society that we've set up so that we can all live together uh, more successfully. Well, Ayn Rand called that throwing everyone into a tribal pot and then hoping, sitting around the edge, um, hoping that you'll get something out of the pot. Um, And there's no reason to live that kind of existence. In a free society, and if you're really an advocate of freedom, your viewpoint is not everybody is a lone wolf. They'll never get together. They'll never cooperate. They'll never form any kinds of groups or associations. But there is one fundamental difference between the welfare state and all the kinds of groups and associations, whether it's to enter into a big company and take a job, whether it's to buy insurance from an insurance company, um, whether it's to hire a lawyer or a doctor. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of relationships that exist in a free society among people, but they're voluntary, which means they're contractual, which means each person, when he enters into the relationship, whether it's you're hiring a dentist, you're starting a business with someone, uh, you marry someone, you're doing it because you think it's to your own benefit, to your own advantage. It will advance your life and happiness. And the other person is doing it for the very reason. If he enters into, you start a business partnership, you start a law firm with someone. You're both doing it because you think you're going to gain from the relationship. The welfare state is not a voluntary relationship. The whole thing is the government seizes money from some people and gives it to other people. It So there's victims and alleged, in the short run at least, beneficiaries. Take Social Security, for instance. The whole essence of the program is to take money from young people who would otherwise use it for their education, uh, to have a better living arrangements for all kinds of different reasons. They could use the money. It's taken from them and given to old people today who are in retirement and say they need an income. So there's a whole group of victims. And in the short run, there's some people who are collecting the sacrifices of other people. So in a capitalist system, relationships, because they're voluntary, they're on the premise that both parties will win from the transaction. That's the sense in which they're win-win. And in a welfare state, the whole premise is some people lose so that other people can win. And that is a travesty to inflict that on people. So would you go along with those today who complain about, you know, we become a nation of makers and takers? 
there is something right about that notion, though it is often misapplied, I think. Um, so to divide up people into there's a whole class of takers and a whole class of makers, and they'll split the lines, and it's 49% are makers, 51% are takers, or it's 10% are makers, 90% are takers. It's not right to classify people like that. What is true is this, that there are people who in life, and there are some people who are completely makers and take nothing. They're throughout their life, both in the personal relationships, at work, they're producers, they produce values, they never want to get something for nothing, and they never take something for nothing. But the vast majority of people, and the whole welfare state is designed like this on purpose, that in parts of your life, you're a maker, and that's the, the welfare state needs makers, people who produce things, because that, that's the values and the money through taxes and so on that they're going to seize. You need that. And then they give the money to other people. And when you're getting the money, you're a taker. And if you're sometimes a maker, sometimes a taker, you can never figure out what do I actually have a right to? What can I claim? Am I a victim or am I making other people victims? You can never figure that out. And it's that's part of the whole idea of a collective pot. And you can no longer think, oh, did I make this? Do I have a right to this? Do I have a right to collect Social Security? I'm sick now. Do I have a right to Medicare? Well, I paid some taxes. I didn't pay nearly as much as what now is required in for my health care because I've fallen. Let's say you uh, you've, uh, have uh, cancer, cancer of the lung, say. And it is, now am I a maker or a taker? You can't figure that out. And you can put it this way, what the welfare state does is insofar as you're a maker, it penalizes you because you're the person whose money it's going to take. And insofar as you're a taker, insofar as you're in need, you need money for your retirement, you need money for your health care, then you have a right to money and you get the distributions from the welfare state. So it penalizes you qua maker and rewards you qua taker. And that is a, I mean, it establishes the the opposite of the right intentions. The, uh, what reality requires of you is to be a maker, and you can only take, that is, consume what you've produced. You have to first and foremost be a producer of values. And the welfare state penalizes you if you're a producer of values. And you can only consume what you produce, and the whole idea of the welfare state is consume even though you haven't produced, because we're going to take it from somebody else. So it is completely perverse and completely immoral. Um, so the issue of makers and takers is an important issue, but it is an issue that the welfare state penalizes you insofar as you're a maker. There's kind of an assumption that has been running through your comments, and it's assumption that I think is more and more challenged, and that's that set aside what we get from the government under the welfare state, that the money we earn on a market is really truly earned. And there's all sorts of objections, but one basically says, look, we benefit from others a great deal, uh, and there's a lot of luck involved. So that, for instance, you know, I had a bunch of teachers when I grew up. Um, I have, uh, I, I learned things from others. I didn't invent the language. I didn't invent all the technology I used for my achievement. And therefore, the idea that every last cent that I earn uh, or that I make in a market is something I really earned or really produced they say that's nonsense, and so there's not any moral problem with redistributing it. What do you think about that? Um, 
it is the wrong way of looking at what it means to earn something. So on that kind of viewpoint, the only person who earns something is if he's born, gets no education, no one teaches him a language, and somehow is he's able to invent all of that himself. He invents the wheel, he discovers Newton's uh, three laws of motion, and so on and so forth, and then he creates an automobile. And that would be, okay, he's done everything from scratch, and that's what it means to earn something. And if you don't do that, then you haven't created nothing, and you therefore have earned nothing, and you deserve nothing. And that is a ridiculous view of what it means to create something. To create is to take what is given around you and to build something new, to build something better. So it's true that in a modern, advanced economy, um, take a, someone who's created tremendous amount of new ideas, new wealth, the Steve Jobs. Is he counting on, does he count on all kinds of discoveries that people have made before him, from the invention of uh, language to the invention of mathematics to the birth of modern science to the creation of a free country where someone like a Steve Jobs can prosper? He would not prosper in some um, backward country of Africa. Uh, and wouldn't prosper nearly as he was able to prosper in America. So that is true, that he's counting on the achievements of other people, and he's building upon those. But in a proper society, the people whose earlier achievements were achievements are rewarded. Their, their achievements are acknowledged, often monetarily, but often not. It's people who make breakthroughs in science, one should feel a real gratitude and acknowledge and and speak of it as their discoveries of new knowledge, and one builds upon that. And to earn something to create is to build upon what has come before. If you acknowledge what has come before and you feel respect and admiration for those people, that is what they deserve. Um, so there's no sense in which a Steve Jaws, because he's counting on the achievements of an Isaac Newton and a Thomas Jefferson, somehow the money doesn't belong to him. And who does it belong to? It certainly doesn't belong to somebody who's in need, who doesn't want to work, and that claims a right to uh, Steve Jobs' life and time. time. If anything, you could say it belongs to Newton and Jefferson, but it doesn't. Their achievements, one should acknowledge what they've done, and if you carry it further, you are rewarded for carrying it further. All right, so let me challenge you from a different perspective, uh, and this is the kind of arguments we get from um, conservatives. And they would agree with you to a certain extent that the, the welfare state is morally problematic, or at least generally a bad thing. Um, they would support a, a safety net, and we can talk about that. But one of the major things they'd say is, you're wrong to ascribe the welfare state's morality to religion, because they'd say, look, um, if you take religion seriously, if you take being your brother seriously, help should be voluntary because there's nothing noble about being forced to help others. Uh, there's nothing noble about helping others with someone else's money. So do you think, what do you think of that kind of argument? Well, that is a, there's a lot of things to say about that. One is that I was not ascribing the welfare state to religion, though religion uh, and religious morality, particularly Christian morality, certainly plays a major role in the birth of the welfare state, but it's not the only um, moral factor involved. Ayn Rand called 
the, the morality behind the welfare state that is going to make a victim of a producer in order to give the money to someone precisely because that person hasn't produced it. He has a right to it because he hasn't produced it. And the person from whom it's taken doesn't have a right to it because he's produced it. She called the, that morality, it's a morality of self-sacrifice. It requires the producer to acknowledge that, yes, this, I don't have a right to this because I've produced it, and it's right for it to be taken and given to somebody else. It requires an enormous amount of self-sacrifice on the part of the person who's produced the values, who's produced the money and the wealth. And it requires that that person be taught that it's right to engage in self-sacrifice, that this is what morality requires and demands, and that this form of morality, a morality of self-sacrifice, that that's the essence of what it means to be good, to hold yourself up as a moral person, to be ready and willing to sacrifice your life, your time, your money, when someone else claims it because they're in need. That morality had been taught um, in the, it makes a major comeback in the 19th century through the work of philosophers, and she pinned the, the primary culprit, the fundamental culprit here, was Immanuel Kant. Um, and But that's, it's advocated in part as a secular morality. There's no reference here to God. But on the other hand, that whole perspective that what morality is about is sacrifice comes from religion. So it's a resurrecting of that view of morality in secular form um, that was philosophically the major cause of the welfare state that, and, and the, the welfare states of socialism, of communism that arose in the 20th century. But the whole idea of sacrifice, if you think of Christ on the cross, the whole thing that makes his act moral is he's sacrificing. He's the perfect embodiment of the good. He's God-like, the Son of God, and he sacrifices for sinners. He sacrifices for people who are, by their own acknowledgement, by his acknowledgement, are bad. They're sinners. They're not good. That's what entitles them to Christ's sacrifice. And he's to sacrifice precisely because he is good. So that is the essence of putting self-sacrifice as the height of morality. It comes from religion, but it is later secularized, and it's important to recognize that it's secularized. So it's not the only force pushing in the direction of the welfare state is not religion, but it certainly is one force, and you can see that in American history in the 19th and 20th century. The progressive movement, for instance, it's motivated in significant part by religious attitudes as well, but it's the problem, you can put it in effect, is that it's the religious and the secular coming together and both advocating self-sacrifice as a moral ideal. And when you get that, there's nowhere to turn. It... So why would you? Th why would, does the average American think the welfare state is a necessity? Um, well, the average American, I don't think, does think it is a necessity. Certainly he doesn't think it's a necessity for himself. Um, so it's not, oh, I'm going to need to go on government assistance. I'm going to need government to take care of me in my old age. I'm going to need government to take care of my health care. Um, so it's not a necessity in that sense. 
maybe they will think, well, but other people will require this, but not, they don't even think the vast majority of other people require this. Um, but it's, I mean, an average American knows of his friends, of his family, and so on. They're not all beggars or beggars in waiting. Um, but what they do, and they've been told this repeatedly, is, well, there is some significant set of people who won't be able to take care of themselves, who won't be able to plan for their old age, who won't be able to plan for their medical expenses, um, who will be in need, and, well, we all know that need gives them a claim. So the necessity of the welfare state is that it's a moral necessity. It is, if we're going to be good, and if we're going to hold up our country as good, then we need this kind of system that gives to those in need. And in effect, the too many Americans sort of wash their hands with it. Okay, well, the government's looking after people in need. Now I've done my moral responsibility. Yeah, there's some of uh, uh, this is collected in taxes and taken from me, but that it's in the name of something good. I'm not going to look too much in detail at how these welfare programs work, of the people collecting the money and whether they've um, tried to make something of their lives, have tried to find where I'm not going to look into that too much because morality, what it requires of me is that I help those in need for whatever reason they happen to be in need. So I'll do that in effect part-time and live my life the rest of the time. So it's a moral necessity, not a practical necessity. Well, but so, I mean, you talked about that we should be concerned with pursuing our own happiness and our own interests, but I mean, don't a lot of Americans think, that, yeah, well, what is in my interest is that I have this guaranteed retirement, I have Medicare, all these things are, you know, promised to me. So my self-interest is there should be this welfare state to protect me in my old age. I, I do think there are some people who think that, who think in effect that I have to get what's coming to me. But the vast majority of Americans, if you gave and if, and if you really explain the options to them that you can we're not going to take take social security for instance we're not going to take social security taxes from you you're not going to be taxed 30 years um and then hopefully in retirement the government will be able to look after you you we're going to give you the freedom to look after your own life to keep your money you have to plan for your retirement i think the majority of americans would think of that as, yes, I'm, I'm willing and eager to take on that responsibility. There is a subset of people who don't want the responsibility for their own lives. They want to be kept. They want to be taken care of. Um, and think of things like Social Security and Medicare as desirable precisely because they relieve the person of a responsibility for his own uh, old age, for his own health care. But I do not think the vast majority of Americans are trying to shirk the burden. Of, and it's not a burden. I mean, it's to shirk the privilege of living your own life um, and pursuing it, your own happiness, and building the kind of life that you want to live. So part of what has happened is that, and Social Security, I think, is an example of this. It's characterized as Look, you're saving for your own retirement. Um, so it's characterized as you're taking responsibility for your own 
life. But what real saving for retirement looks like is if you, and if, if you want to save and you want a nest egg that you can count on in retirement, is to put this money into productive use, to invest it into companies, uh, whether in the stocks or bonds of companies, or to start your own business, and then you're going to use sell it when you retire, and you'll use that money as um, for your retirement for, and for your old age. It's to really invest it into productive enterprises, to save and invest. When you hand the money over to government, what it does is spends it, it which is precisely why it wants these kinds of programs. Social Security gives it another form on which it can tax us and then spend it on all the kinds of programs and all the kinds of people in need that it wants to. And then hopefully when you retire, there'll be enough other suckers around. Um, that, that is young people who are working, who they're going to take their money and wealth from and give it to you. And then hopefully 30 down, years down the road, when they are at old age, there'll be other suckers around who they can take the money from. That's what the program is. It has nothing to do with investment, with savings, with building a future. And I think if Americans understood that and clearly understood the meaning of that, there would be many more people who would um, look at Social Security not as a program that is has anything to do with investment or self-responsibility. They would look at it for the outrage it is and say, no, I don't want to be a part of this. And I think most young people today, if you told, gave them the option to be exempt from Social Security taxes and then will not collect anything in retirement, you have to plan for your own old age, they would take that for sure. I definitely would take that, and I think any um, normal American young person would take that choice. So for people who are listening and are convinced of this kind of viewpoint, I mean, what they're going to go out there and they're going to, you know, make an argument we need to get rid of the welfare state and create a, a freer society. Like, what do they say then when they're hit with the inevitable, you don't care about poor people, you lack compassion? You know, what's the what's the way to answer that without shrinking inside your shell? You have to confront the moral issue head on and directly. Um, and in the end, I think what is indispensable is to understand Ayn Rand's moral view and moral perspective on this kind of issue, both in the positive and in the negative. So the idea that it's the welfare statists, the people pushing for a welfare state, for expansions of Social Security, of Medicare, for a min uh, higher minimum or a so-called living wage, the people pushing for these kinds of things have such a malevolent view of individuals and of human beings. And the whole moral premise is a moral premise not that has nothing to do with benevolence or goodwill. It's the exact opposite. <clears throat> Their moral premise is, by virtue of having made something of your life, by virtue of becoming wealthy, of being productive, of having a good character, of having built something, of being a maker, to go back to that language. By virtue of being a maker, you now are going to be penalized. We're going to take the wealth you've produced. We're going to take the, your time. We're going to take a part of your life and give it to someone precisely because they have not made anything. They've not produced 
anything. They've not earned anything. So you are, in effect, a serf and servant, and not even a servant of something noble or good, of a servant of need, of a servant of something, the absence. It's the absence of wealth, the absence of a character, uh, of a good character, the poor in spirit, or the poor. Um, it, what gives them a claim to things is a negative, is an absence. It's the, as Ayn Rand would put it, it's the lack of value. That is such a malevolent view of human beings, that insofar as you're good, you're penalized, and insofar as you don't have any values and you're not good, you're rewarded. And to speak of that as a benevolent view of human beings and of human life is the exact opposite of the truth. <clears throat> and now flip it around to the positive. The person who tells you, as Ayn Rand tells you, your life belongs to you. The good is to live it, to make something of it, to become happy, to build the kind of career, the kind of romantic life, the kind of family life that you want. It's to, to respect the fact that it's your life, you're to think, you can earn property, and what you earn you will keep, and you can set your whole course to be on the pursuit of happiness so that you can make in your days uh, hours, minutes, and years something great, something enjoyable, something not to be missed. That is what life is about. And we're going to have a system in which you're free to do that. And to view that as, well, this is a malevolent view of people. You don't care about people. You're not compassionate. This is what it means to be benevolent, to have goodwill, to feel compassion for people in the sense of viewing them as you can make something of your life, you can build values. That is what is good about you. That is what we acknowledge as good, and that is what the whole system, which is what a system of freedom or a capitalist system, is geared to, to the person who will and wants to and eagerly embraces the fact that it's his life and he's going to make something of it. The whole system's geared to that person, to the maker, not to the taker. You can only take or consume what you actually make and what you actually earn. That is such a benevolent and positive and, and expression of goodwill towards other people. So it, that kind of charge that capitalism is, well, you're advocating only a few people will survive, it's going to be dog-eat-dog, dog. you have such a negative view of the poor, there's nothing, no goodwill and no benevolence here. That accusation is, I mean, literally the opposite of the truth. And that, it has to be addressed in that form. There's no kind of appeasement to say, to no, no, to, to think of the people advocating the welfare state as they actually have compassion, and they're on the side of benevolence and goodwill, and but don't, we're not going to go so far, yeah, we'll still have a safety net, and so all that is to concede what is, in fact, the opposite of the truth, that the, that, the, the to make people cogs in a machine, to throw them into a tribal pot, to make them responsible for the needs, the suffering, the lack of values of other people, um, and to view that as an expression of goodwill or benevolence is monstrous. There's nothing good about it. Where can listeners find out more about your work? Um, they can find out more about my work at the, on the web at einran.org. Um, 
and there'll be a bio and links to things I've written, and um, certainly they can find more about Ayn Rand and Ayn Rand's moral perspective, which I think in the end is indispensable to understanding and challenging the welfare state. My guest today has been Ankar Gante. Ankar, thank you for being a part of the Debt Dialogues. Thanks for having me on. So I don't have too much to add to what Ankar said. I would say the one major takeaway from today's program is the vital importance of reading and studying the works of Ayn Rand. No other thinker or commentator on the welfare state really digs in at this deep level and challenges the morality of the welfare state and challenges this idea that we are our brother's keeper and that we have a moral duty to serve the needs of others, to put those needs ahead of our own desire to make the most of our life. Now, a lot of people read Ayn Rand and they read her at kind of a political level and see that she's challenging the size of government, that she's for capitalism. But as Ankar highlighted, at a deeper level, she's questioning and she's trying to get us to question basic issues of right or wrong. What is good in life? Is it serving others? Is it being your brother's keeper? Is it being one of the kept? Or is it focusing on your own happiness and being dedicated to the achievement of your life and making the most of that life. And if it's the latter, then the welfare state is not only unnecessary, but immoral. And immoral not just because it's too expensive or because we've gone beyond a so-called safety net, but immoral in its very essence. Because what it says is that your life and the work and the product of your work do not belong to you, but they belong to others. Others precisely because they haven't achieved what you've achieved. So read Ayn Rand. Uh, I recommend starting with The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, her two most important novels. And um, then you can turn to her nonfiction, Above All, The Virtue of Selfishness, and Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. I think that uh, you'll get a lot out of them, and it'll be very valuable in defending and opposing the debt draft. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.